I want to talk today about the compelling uh, force, the compelling agent behind why we preach the gospel, why we want to share the gospel. And in a, in a word, that's, that compelling force is, is love. So there's the whole message. Now I'll take the next 59 minutes and develop that theme. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus... That if one died for all, then all died. That is a loaded, loaded phrase. It's a little cryptic the way that, Paul, the way that it translates into the English. But uh, that is the phrase. That if one died for all, then all died. 15. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We're going to work through this passage to verse 21. We won't go phrase by phrase, but there are several phrases that I want to focus on um, because this is the crux of the matter. We've been talking the last several weeks about sharing the gospel. Uh, We've highlighted the details of the gospel. Uh, We talked last week about the power that's uh, inherent in, in the kingdom of God and as subjects of the kingdom, we can manifest the power of God as a confirming uh, uh, reality to the truth of the gospel. Um, We've talked about how we participate in the gospel through prayer, proclamation, manifesting power. Today, I want to deal with this issue of what then motivates us. What motivates us to share the gospel? And there is a major shift that will take place in us if we will connect to the biblical motivation for sharing the gospel rather than other motivations. It's interesting how in the church, I look back at my own life, and even in the church, church stuff, even in Christianity, so many, uh, I look back at my own life and I see so many of my motives as mixed motives. You know, I remember early on as a young man uh, trying to share the gospel with as many people as, as possible, and, and I feel like there was good things in there. I feel like the Lord was using it and uh, um, leading you know, people to the Lord as a, as a new believer even. And, but then I also had that whole mixture thing going on in me of trying to be seen, trying to be noticed, wanted to be you know, the cool guy in church, the, the radical Christian or whatever. And, and then a whole other side of mixture where it was like trying to work to gain God's approval. And, uh, and so those things are resident. I mean, when you come out of the world, you get saved, you know, you, work, you have to work through um, a variety of, of inner issues that, you know, they get worked out over time. I'll tell you what, uh, prayer will help you to work those out. The Word will help you to work those out. Uh, after a period of time, things that, that seem to be the, the identifying factors of your nature, they just kind of, they, they, they just lose their energy. We, we are new creatures in Christ, and, and that transformation begins to take place in our mind and our emotions, which is powerful, the renewing of our mind through the Word. Well, as I look at this, and I recognize that Paul's main point about sh- uh, the reason to share the gospel is the issue of love. When that truth lands, 
it, it, it deals with all these uh, other motives, all this mixture, and it softens your heart uh, to be malleable, to be usable in the hands of the Lord at a whole different level. It's no longer about you. It's no longer about how you'll look or trying to gain you know, God's favor for doing something spiritual. And, and it, at the end of the day, it's not primarily even about that person. Now, it's about them uh, to God, but it's about this to you, that he loves you so much and you want to love him back by introducing this person to him whom he loves. And when that thing starts moving in you, I mean, it will make you fearless. It will make you fearless. Perfect love casts out all fear. And when that thing is touching you, when it's beyond, I get another testimony to tell my friends or another notch in my spiritual belt or whatever, I'm going to gain God's favor or the, whatever the things are. When it goes beyond that and it, and it hits you at this level that he loved me so much and he loves them so much, I want to love him by bringing them to him. When it hits there, beloved, you're at a different place. You're at a different place. And so that's what Paul, when he summarizes why we're compelled, why we're, why we're desirous and motivated to share the gospel, he, he boils it down to this issue, love. The love of God. The love of God touching and moving in our heart. That's what compels us. The movement of God's love in us. So, that phrase, that big phrase, let's work through it a bit. I want to take, take a look at the cross today uh, because therein is love defined in the cross. And I, and I, want, I want us to, to be compelled again through the revelation of the cross and God's love in the cross. I, I was thinking today, you know, the further away that I live from the cross, the further away I live truly from the love of God. The closer I live to the cross, the, the, the greater in revelation I live of his love. If the cross becomes trite, if the cross becomes sort of just, you know, that story, we know the cross. Like, come on, can you give us something deep, brother? If, if we get there in our, in our approach to the cross, I'm telling you, we've missed the point. The cross is the epitome of love. The cross The definition of love. So here's this phrase. He goes, the love of Christ compels us because we judge or we think this. We recognize this. We judge thus. We realize this, that if one died for all, then all died. died, If one died for all, all died. He goes, this is wherein we recognize love. Through that phrase, if one died for all, all died. That is the simplest way to say it this way, that when he died on the cross, he took death and punishment for you. To this extent, it's as if you actually went through the death yourself. In other words, we know this. 
The wages of sin is death. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. One sin, Paul tells us in Galatians, is as if you've broken the entire law, is as if you've done every sin. One sin is that, is that destructive. It's, it's, it's that uh, you know, staining of the soul. It, it, is, it is totally destructive. One sin destroys humanity. One person, one sin, and in and, and, and Adam, we see that sin spreads to every person. And for each of us, even one sin is as if we've committed uh, uh, every sin. And so that statement where he, says, where he says, we judge thus, if one died for all, then all died. What he's saying is this, that Christ's death was so final, it was so uh, complete, so comprehensive in its payment for sin, we judge it this way, that when he died, it's as if everybody died, as if everybody paid for their sin, as if every sin for all humanity was paid for. We judge thus, that if one died, all died. But aren't you thankful that you didn't have to die to pay for your sin? Oh my goodness. The summary statement, the love of Christ compels us because we recognize this point, that when he died, we all died in the sense of we all died to, to sin. We all died because of sin. We all, all the penalty of sin was paid for through that death. That's what he's saying. And I, I don't know about you, when I go back in my mind, and think about what I was like before Jesus. The brokenness of my life before Jesus. I mean, I've said this you know, a lot. I think I said it last week. But when somebody asked me, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? The first time somebody ever asked me that, I, without a second thought, I said, I would go to hell. <laughs> I didn't try the... Yeah, I'm basically a good person. I knew I wasn't because of all the junk that I had done. I didn't try that. I said, I'll, I'll definitely go to hell. <laughs> when I think back about all of the just, you know, horrifying, you know, filth and sin that I, that I engaged with, and then I recognize his death is so final that my, my sin is completely paid for in him and God thinks of it this way. It's as if I paid the penalty, but I didn't. He did. When I think about all that stuff and Jesus paid the penalty for me, oh my goodness, beloved. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this is too good. It's too good. A payment, a penalty, I could not take care of myself. He dies for me. He dies in my spot. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. If one died, then all died. It's the same for you. It's the same for you. 
The cross of Christ was complete in its payment for sin. That's the point. Not just for, you know, some special person or for them over there. For you, if one died, all died. No matter what the sin is, if one died, all died. No matter if it's a murderer, if one died, all died. No matter if it's a homosexual, one died, all died. A fornicator, a a perverse, I mean, just unthinkable kind of person. If one died, all died. He paid it. Oh, my God. The liar, the thief, the arrogant, the idol worshiper, the demon worshiper. If one died, all died. There, it, it doesn't have to be done again. The payment has been made. When you punish yourself, when, if you're in Christ and you punish yourself for sin, rather than just running and clinging to the cross and saying, forgive me. See, in one instant, when you run and say, forgive me, it's clean, it's done, it's forgiveness, it's justification, it's clean, it's cleansed. If you punish yourself, you're trying to take upon you the payment that he already paid. You know how good this is? One died, all died. Don't do the guilt trip. Don't take yourself on some shame ride. Run to the cross. See God there. See God there in your place, bleeding and dying. And in that one moment, say, forgive me, and it's all done again, cleansed. If one died, all died. The love of Christ compels us because we judge that. We recognize that. When he died, he paid for me. If one died, all died. It's as if I died. It's as if you died. It's as if they died, whoever they are. The radical Muslim. I mean, the, the person that hates Christians and hates God. Whoever that person is, if one died, all died. It's available for them. Oh my goodness. This is the crux of the issue. This is the crux of the matter. One died, all died. In verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I love that verse. I love that verse. It's a great lordship verse. It's the essence of lordship. It's the essence of the offer of the gospel. It's Jesus saying, my life for for yours. He died for all that they which live should no longer live for themselves. No longer live for themselves. I'll tell you, that is, (laughs) that verse flies in the face of basically uh, 100% of the way our culture works. Because our culture is sort of like, look out for number one, pursue happiness for yourself, do what feels good. You know, do what feels good. If it doesn't hurt anybody else, just go ahead and do it. You know, people, they say, live and let live. Except for Christ says, I died for you Give me your life. I've given you mine. Give me yours. 
I've given you my life. Now give me your life. You know what the thing is? We imagine, and, and you know, if you've been in the Lord a long time, you may not think it this way, but, but man, the world definitely tries to shove this down your, your throat. The idea that if you give your life fully to Jesus, somehow that's going to be worse for you. Somehow that's going to be less than how it would be if you were in charge. Man, you know, I don't know about you, but I figured out a while back, I make a horrible God. Awful. Bad leader of my life. Bad leader of my life. For 20 plus years though now, I look at my life and I go, how in the world did I get here? This is awesome. Oh, you're an awesome leader. I would have never done this. This is great. I love this. Over and over and over and over. I go, you are so cool. I would never have chosen to do it like this. We say yes to him and he goes, now let me show you where I'm about to take you. And it gets so fun, amazing. Well, it just goes to, you know, it just stands to reason that the one who made you knows what's the best life for you. But somehow we imagine if we fully give him our life, we're going to live lesser than. You know, like he's, like really what he wants is a bunch of slaves. He's just going to, you know, be this heavy taskmaster. That's a lie of the enemy. He died for all that they which live shouldn't live for themselves anymore. They should actually choose a really much better end for themselves. Live for him. They shouldn't live for themselves, but they should live for him who died for them and rose again. I tell you, living for Jesus, not living for yourself. We, we tag, uh, we use that tag, I'm living for Jesus. We tag that in a really broad way across our life. But man, I'll tell you what, it's amazing when you allow the Lord to begin to shine the light on your heart, on your motives, on your desires, and you look at all the different areas and you go, Lord, Ah, search me and know me. And he goes, I actually already know you. You're the one that's got to get to know you. Uh, and you go, okay, so what about, what about these motives here? And he goes, yeah, that wasn't exactly for me. Let's get rid of that motive, son, and let's find love. Let's get rid of that vain pursuit, daughter, and let's find love. Let's get rid of that vanity that th- you think you're going to be satisfied with and find love. You're actually really looking for love. You're looking for me. You're looking for life lived with me. You're looking to be with me. You're looking for love to fill you. And all these side issues, all these ancillary you know, pursuits and side motivations, uh, they all strain out that, that depth of relationship that he's wanting. God is not some big fuddy-duddy trying to like, you know, cramp everybody's style. What he's trying to do is get us delivered from sin and things that beset us. From, they beset us from what? From being intimate with him. From love. He's trying to get the junk out that is in the way of he and, he and us. Of him and us. He died that we which live should no longer live for ourselves. No longer live for yourself. Think about that. What if 100% of all Christians were no longer living for themselves? Like really? 
Oh my. We got a little ways to go, don't we? Thank God that he loves the weak. Thank God that he loves the immature. Thank God that he doesn't require 100% maturity day one. None of us would be in, isn't that right? But oh, to have the lean of the heart and to say, oh, I, want, actually, I do actually want to be fully yours. Not my will, but yours be done. I must decrease, you must increase. I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for him who died for me and rose again. Beloved, this is the essence of the gospel. He died and it paid for us and his love compelled him to do it. And so then we are compelled by love to what? To lay our lives down for him. Whatever that looks like. Whatever that looks like. Now let's just take it a step further because Paul doesn't let us off the hook there. Verse 18, after he describes that we're a new creation, which, I mean, is like a series in itself. Verse 18, now all things or all these things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is a crazy phrase, not imputing their trespasses to them, Who did he impute their trespasses to? Jesus. Oh my goodness. He didn't force me to stand and deal with the fact that I'd done all these things. He goes, I'm going to take all of it off of you, son, and put it on my son. I'm going to take it all of you off of you, Billy, and I'm going to put it on my son, Jesus. I'm going to impute righteousness to you. I'm going to put your sin on him not imputing their trespasses against them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors. Everybody say ambassadors. And you just got like a, a regal title. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God For he made him who knew no sin to be sin. There it is. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Talk about the reconciliation just for a moment. The the idea that God has reconciled us to himself, um, it's mind-blowing. Most people feel like that what they've got to overcome is the mad God and try to sort of appease his wrath. Instead, what God says in the gospel is, I've already taken care of my side of the problem by putting your sin on my son. I've destroyed the enmity between us by putting all your sin on Jesus, having Jesus die in your place. There's no problem on my side. Therefore, you be reconciled to me. He goes, get rid of your anger with me. Get rid of your offense with me because I've already taken all your sin and put it on Jesus. Oh my goodness, beloved. 
the message the world needs to hear is not that there's this angry God that they've got to sort of measure up to his standard. No, it's that God doesn't have a problem and he proved it and took care of it by crucifying his son for you. He died for you. Your sin was upon him. The payment was made from God's side. It's clear. Get rid of your offense. Get rid of your anger with God. Get rid of your rejection of Jesus. Get rid of your, you know, the enmity in your heart. Get rid of your arrogance believing that you, your payment for your own sin is enough. It'll never be. Get rid of the issue on your side. Get rid of your unbelief and be reconciled to God. That's the ministry of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and now he's committed that ministry, this ambassadorial ministry of reconciliation to us. No wonder, this is good news. This is cool stuff. I get to tell people that the payment for their sin has already been made, that Jesus' death already pays for them so they don't have to die, that God got all the issues on his side out of the way through destroying his son on their behalf, and if they will just get rid of their unbelief. He's inviting them into the kingdom. That's the ambassadorial ministry. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Ambassadors inviting those who are not in the kingdom to come and join the kingdom. Ambassadors. What do ambassadors do? They represent the country, the nation that they came from. They express the will, the desires, the purposes, and the emotions of the king that they serve. You, my friend, are an ambassador for Jesus. Given this awesome office, this awesome ministry to express his emotions, his will, his desires to those that are not a part of his kingdom. I love it. I love that. Because as an ambassador, compelled by love, with the recognition of the power of the gospel, the truth of Christ, substitutionary death, with all that in place, here we are, and we can, recon- we can invite people to be reconciled to God. With the ministry of reconciliation, calling people into the kingdom. This is our portion This is what we get to do. This isn't like, oh no, I don't know if I really want to do it. No, no, no. You've been reconciled. Right? He died for you. He died for them. Allow that truth to well up on the inside of you and compel you into your ambassador's role. Amen. Now, flip over with me to John Chapter 15. I know I'm preaching the the verses you, you, you learned the first month that you were saved. But I don't mind that. John 15. 
verse 13. Let's look at this. The love of God is fully demonstrated in the cross. John 15, verse 13. Jesus speaking. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Here he is, he's at the end of his life. John 14 through 17 is an amazing study. I would encourage you to go through it slowly. Such a great study where Jesus, at the end of his life, he knows he's getting ready to go to the cross, and he's unpacking some of the most dear truths, some of the, some of the deepest truths to his own heart. And he's explaining the truth of love. And John 15 is a great chapter for that. I remember as a young man, I memorized John 15 because every word in John chapter 15 is read. I just picked one. I went, let me find one with a bunch of red words. That one's got all red words. Awesome. These are all the words of God. And I went, oh, wait a minute. The Bible is the word of God, right? It's actually, it's all the words of God, but these are red, so it's better. But John 15, verse 13, there's such depth on that. Greater love has no one than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. I was meditating on it this week, and I was just, my heart was just moving over this idea. Jesus Christ looking me in the eye and saying, you're my friend. I'm going to go die for you. Have you personalized it at that level? I'm thinking about the 15-year-old version of me completely drowning in sin, doing all manner of all sorts of horrifying stuff, and Jesus going, hey, friend, I'm about to take the payment for all of it. I'm heading to the cross. Here I go. And then the scene of the Via Dolorosa and the scene of the scourge and the scene of the crucifixion all unraveling, all, all playing out in my mind and the entire time him saying, you're my friend and I want a relationship with you. Have you personalized it at that level? Because if it's greater love is no man than and one lay down his life for his friends and friends equals somebody else to you, the compelling power of love isn't touching your heart. You've got to personalize this issue. This was about you. This was about you. It was about you and him. The cross was about you and him. I look at that word greater and I realize this week I was looking at it and I realized I'd never thought about this but love is measurable because he uses the term greater and he gives us insight that there's a greater love. In fact, there's a love that is the greatest love. There's no greater love than this love that he's about to describe. And what he says is the love that lays its life down for another is the greatest love. It's measurable. Now, he's speaking about himself, but using a broad brush to describe sacrificial love, the truth of sacrificial self-emptying love. Self-emptying love is ultimately the greatest love there is. Now, here's the thing. When you look at Christ's sacrifice 
and you compare it to a human, for instance, say uh, you know somebody was uh, in the road out here in front of the, the house of prayer and you went and rescued them and you pushed them out of the way, but you got hit by a car. Somebody say, oh, that was such an act of heroism, such an act of love. You, you, know, you gave your life for that one. Wow, that's incredible. That's right. It is great love defined biblically. That would be great love to lay your life down for another. But when we look at Christ's act of sacrifice, when we look at Jesus' act of sacrifice, there's a couple things that make that even, you know, far more exceptional than even just another person laying their life down for a person. For instance, when God has to lay his life down for a human, he has to come out of heaven in perfection and put on skin as a person, as a baby. He actually has to do the incarnation. He has to grow up and for his sacrifice to to actually be, uh, the word is efficacious, effectual to take care of our sin, he actually has to say no to temptation for 30 years. And deal with all the things that you and I deal with in a fallen world. Tempted in every, every way yet without sin. And then he comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom and it gets him in a little bit of trouble. Read the book of John and you'll find out that they were trying to kill him nearly from day one in his ministry. And then God in the flesh is arrested We arrested God. Think about wrongful imprisonment. I mean, we arrested God. And then we lied about him and trumped up charges about him. And because of our own sin and jealousy... We handed him over to be put to death and they didn't just sort of, you know, do the, you know, firing squad. One minute he's alive, next minute he's dead. Have you walked through the the journey lately? Have you thought it through? They arrest him like some sort of thief and they begin to immediately mock him and demean him. And the, and the chief priests, they mock his deity. They mocked God. And the soldiers begin to beat him. Think about that. Human fists hitting the face of God. And they accuse him. They insult him. They, it, the Bible says they actually spit in his face. Like spit in Jesus' face. I was just slowly thinking about what in the world was that? They wove together the, the, the crown of thorns with those big Middle Eastern thorns. Don't think thorn bush. Think big t- 
two, three-inch thorns. They place it on his head, and they beat it into his head with a reed so that the, the talons go into his, into his head, into his skull even. And they mock him. They put the reed in his hand, and they, they put the, the robe on him, the purple robe, and they say, they mock him. Hail, king of the Jews, the one who is the king of the Jews. Mocking our Jesus. Well, before that, they scourged him. They take the cat of nine tails. They stretch him out over the Roman whipping station. Historians tell us a lot of times they would take that whip. They would dip it into lamb's blood. And the, the cat of nine tails is a piece of stone or rock or glass in the end. Nine extensions coming off of one whip handle. And they would dip it in the lamb's blood and they would whip the the victim's back, the the stone or the rock would grab and they would rip it across creating stripes, but the lamb's blood would go immediately into the cuts causing instantaneous infections. Over and over. The Jews had a law 39 times because they believed that if you did did it to somebody 40 times, they would die. The Romans didn't have that law. The Romans just beat the man till they felt like it was enough. And oftentimes the victim of the Roman scourge would die from the scourge itself. Isaiah sees ahead and says, you gave your cheeks to those who rip out the beard. They ripped out his beard out of his face. So now his back is a bloody mess. His face is a raw, bloody mess. They put the robe on him. They put the crown on him. They beat him, mock him, spit on him. And then they lead him to be crucified. They take the cross. They strap it to his his arms across his back. And they require him to carry it to to Golgotha. And after being beaten and brutalized and abused all night, going through the Roman scourge, he gives out. God in the flesh, our Jesus, the Jewish man from Nazareth, shaking, falling, trembling, collapsing. How far did God have to go to get there? from perfection in eternity to to having a cross strapped on his back, beaten, bloodied, and completely exhausted and collapsed on the Via Dolorosa. How far? Greater love has no man than this. The magnitude of the love is determined by how far you have to go to lay your life down. He had to go from there To the Via Della Rosa. Well, that's not the end. They pick him up. They give his cross to another. He, he makes it up to the, 
hill of the skull to Golgotha. They lay them down across that. They tie the arms of the victim on. And in a crucifixion, you know, you'll see it in the movie, the, the nail goes through the palm of the hand. But the, the Hebrew hand is actually up to the wrist. It's about this far up. And it, it's, it's understood scientifically if you were to... If you were to spike somebody in the hand that would tear through the flesh out the thumb, it, the, the hand wouldn't hold. So they would actually take the spike, think railroad you know, style spike, and they would drive it through the two bones in the arm, wedging it on either side. And then they lay the the upright bar there and they put the feet on top of one another and they drive through the front of the ankle, the, that, that kind of open area there. You can see where a, a, a spike would fit and they drive through the front and the back ankle at the same time blowing out both heels and fastening the foot to the cross. And it's then that they lift up the cross and it, what they would have to have is they would have to have a a hole dug several feet down so the cross would be lifted up and dropped. It actually would drop down into a hole a couple feet and virtually every time the victim's shoulders would be completely ripped out of joint. They would dislocate both shoulders. So for the person that was undergoing the victim that was undergoing the cross, they would be compressed upon their diaphragm. They wouldn't be able to breathe. They would actually have to push up on the nail in their ankle to get a breath. And over and over and over, for hours, Jesus, over and over and over. How did God get to there? Love. Not for them. I mean, yes, for them, but don't make it about them. Make it about you. Because if you could get the play-by-play from Jesus and you had the conversation, Lord, what was it like? He would say, man, my body was completely racked with pain. I mean, nothing like that. When they drove the nail through my ankle, I mean, nothing like that I'd ever felt. The scourge was nothing compared to the, the shock of being dropped into the into the hole on the cross, but the entire time, I know it's going to sound odd, the entire time my heart was filled with joy. I go, joy, Lord? He goes, that's right, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about your face. Because I've been dreaming about you for eternity past. And I just wanted to be with you. I just wanted to be with you, and so, the joy that was inside of me. It was compelling me forward. Greater love is no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. How far did he have to go? The magnitude of, of the distance, the magnitude of the love. I mean, the, how far of a journey was that for Christ to have to go? That shows the magnitude of his love for you. What was the compelling thing in Christ? Love. The intensity of the love carried him all the way. How intense, how 
how, how incredible, how passionate, how potent, that's the word I'm looking for, how potent is the love carrying Jesus to the cross when he himself is love. He is the one who is love itself. How potent is the love that carries him from eternity to the cross? Greater love is no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. I want to live close to this reality because it changes my approach. When it comes to being an ambassador, it changes my approach. I don't have this attitude, you nasty sinner, do you know? Da, da, da. I go, oh my God. He gave himself for you. Do you know how much he wants you? He's, he's compelling you to be reconciled because he wants a relationship with you. The arrest, the scourge, the robe, the thorns, the mockery, they spit on him, they crucified him. Greater love is no man than this. They laid down his life for his friends. Thank God he didn't stay in that tomb. (laughs) He's risen from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father so you and I can walk in newness of life. He's risen from the dead. He gives us his life. He took our death and he gives us his life. This is the gospel. He died for all that they which live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I want to live for him. He wants us to live with him and for him. And so the response of my heart becomes this. All I want to do is love you back. When we see the love of Jesus on the cross, when we see the cross of Christ, when we comprehend the justification, the issue that he traded his life for us, calls us innocent and took our guilt. When we get that point, we go, oh my goodness, it's too good to be true. You've made me innocent. You've made me clean. You've shed your blood for me. Oh, This is invigorating. How can I love you back? I just want to love you back. And he goes, I've made you a kingdom of priests. Do you understand kingdom of priests? You know what the priest has? Access. I've said it before, but it's so true. It's not simply access to the throne room. It's access to the emotions of his heart. You don't just have access to his chambers, which you have that, but you have access to the chamber of his heart. Friendship. Priesthood means friendship. Priesthood means intimacy. Priesthood means you get to know the secrets of his heart. And so as a priest, it's, a priest is actually, a, uh, the, the role of priest is actually an ambassadorial role. Priests represent men on behalf of God. And they also come to God on behalf of men. You know what I've always thought about priestliness? I've always thought it was about worship 
and service. You know, how can I serve God? How can I love somebody? And in that, I'm serving God. And how can I worship continuously? Just to be a priest, to be a priest before God. You know what I realize? The scripture actually adds a dimension to priesthood I'd never seen before. I want to show you it. Romans 15, look at this. How do I get to love him back? How do I get to love him back? Be a priest. Priest before him. Worship him and serve him. Be a priest. Love him. You have access. Look what Paul says in Romans 15. How he loved God back as a priest. He went, Jesus went all that way to love us. How do we love him back? Look how Romans 15, look how Paul described his priestly service. Nevertheless, brethren, verse 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. As a priest, God is offering the Gentiles. I mean, Paul is offering the Gentiles to God. As a priest, Paul is offering the Gentiles to God. Do you see what Paul adds to the priestly service? Sharing the gospel and winning the lost. I'd never noticed it before. I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified. The offering of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are Paul's offering as a priest. That makes my heart move because I want to be a priest and I want to love him back. I want to do priestly service to God and one way I can love him back is by sharing the gospel with others. I'll end with this little story from yesterday. I was sitting in the McDonald's with my sons and uh, we had just gone fishing and we were going to splurge, go to McDonald's. And I'm sitting in there, and we're just having fun and goofing around. And uh, there's young people sitting all around us. There's, it, it kind of filled up all at the same time. And there's these three young guys sitting there in, in the booth next to us, which was I was facing that booth. And I could tell these were kind of like Hellraiser kind of kids. They're just kind of rough-looking guys, you know. They're, they're average, but you could tell they had that edge on them. And the one kid uh, just was sticking out to me, and I just started sensing the Holy Spirit. I said, Lord, what do, you, what do you want to do in here? You know, might as well blow the McDonald's up while we're at it, just having fun, we're fishing. And I started getting a word of knowledge for this one kid, and uh, I would love to say I just turned into a Superman and just started blowing things apart, power of the Holy Spirit everywhere. It just, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. It was, I was like, huh, I think I'm getting, I definitely am getting a word for that kid. 
huh. And, you know, I'm sitting there talking to my boys, and it just gets, it's getting more clear and clear, you know. And I'm looking at this guy, and I got a few, several details about him from the Lord. And, uh, and him and his buddies, they round their stuff up, and they're getting ready to leave. And uh, they go to another part of the restaurant. I don't know if they went to the bathroom or what, but they just go to the other part of the restaurant. And so I say to the Lord, well, if he walks by the table, I'll grab him. And sure enough, they don't walk by the table. And they're out in the parking lot. And I'm just like, what am I doing? And I just feel God's emotions for this kid. He just loved this kid. And... uh I just, you know, it was like, well, it's now or never. So I go, guys, I'll be right back. And I bolt down the parking lot. And I say, young man, young man, young man, I need to speak to you. And the guy turns around. And I said, you, right there. And I said, you guys are awesome too. He had two buddies with him. I said, I I really want to talk to you. He's looking at me. I said, you're sitting there at your table. And the Lord began to speak to me. I said, that might sound crazy to you. But this is what he began to tell me. And I began to unpack about three or four different details about this young man, how God had made him. And I said, he wants you to know that he knows you, that he loves you. And my heart was melting mushy for this tough looking, six foot two, kind of rough looking kid. And I said, have I described you? He goes, yeah, to a T. I go, God wants to have a relationship with you. And he began to describe to me how he had been serving the Lord at a time in the past and he had backslidden and turned away from the Lord. Well, don't you know his buddy had done the same? I said, have you ever heard the gospel? <laughs> I, that was my bridge. <laughs> and uh, he goes, well, yeah, I have. I go, do you mind if I share it with you again? I go, because it can get so confusing, all churchy, you know, stuff. And he said, no, nah, it's fine. Right? And I shared the gospel with him and these kids were glued They were just frozen listening to me talk to them about Jesus' love for them and how he died for them and how he wants a relationship with them but how their sin will send them to hell and God doesn't want them to go to hell. And I just shared the gospel with these kids and this kid looked at me and he goes, this is exactly what I needed. It's exactly what I needed. And you know, you want the story. I know we all want, did you lead them to the Lord? Did you lead the Lord? And, And right now I'm at the place where I'm not going for the quick fix salvation I want the real deal one. And I said to him, I said, young man, I said, God wants to have a relationship with you restored. I said, I want you to go home tonight and ask Jesus to be your Lord again, to give him your life. And, and I looked at the other guy, I said, the same thing with you. He wants relationship with you. The one kid was like, oh God, what is, we're in church all of a sudden, how are we? I wasn't trying to get a Bible message at McDonald's. So he was kind of, I said, you got an earful today. That's all I said to him. I just let it, just let it, you know, just let it sit. The gospel is the power of God. He got a bomb. He doesn't know it. He's, it'll blow up sometime. These other two, it was really lit. It was really blowing up. And I said, I want you guys to go home tonight. I want you to pray. Ask Jesus to be your Lord. Give your life back to the Lord Jesus. And the kid looked at me again. He goes, this is exactly what I needed it's exactly what I needed here. I said, can I pray for you? They said, yeah. I said, and I laid my hands on them and I asked the Lord, release conviction and draw them to the knowledge of God and birth them into the kingdom again and just all manner of Holy Ghost words. <laughs> Come Holy Spirit, do cool stuff, you know. And uh, 
And I left out of there, and I, I just the point I'm making. I really felt the love of God for that kid. This tough kid, just radical kid, he just doing stupid stuff just to be crazy. And I told him, I said, God made you like that. So you're not crazy because you're just, you know, a freak. You're crazy because God made you radical like that. He made you a leader. He wove all that stuff together. He loves you. My heart was melting for this kid. And man, you know, you think you're going to go out on a limb like that and it's just going to be, the kid's going to be like, shut up, get out of my face. And he just, the, the presence of the Lord was just melting that guy. Beloved, he loves them. Jesus loves you and Jesus loves them. I want to be a priest and offer to God an acceptable gift. How can I love him back? I want to give him somebody else. Somebody that he loves. Greater love is no man than this. And the cross demonstrates it's the definition of love. If we'll live close to the cross, I promise you, it will compel our hearts in love. That's the point. That the compelling power of the love of God demonstrated in the cross would cause us to overflow with love for God and overflow with love for people. Why do we share the gospel? Because the love of God compels us. Amen. Amen.